Amen. Thank you, Bailey and the band. Man, it is so good that when uh, when our folks are, are out, pastors are out, man, it's so awesome that we have people like Bailey and Jeremiah and Joseph and all of those that we have just to hand the baton off to. And man, we are so very, very thankful as a church. I hope you understand that. I hope you understand uh, how blessed we are to have those volunteers that are ready to step in uh, to those roles. Will is serving in the preschool and children's. He's serving preschool. Now he's serving in the kids. Uh, and so uh, we do that each and every quarter. We want people that are normally up on this stage, myself, Joseph, uh, and Jeremiah, and Will, uh, we want to make it a point for us to get in those preschool and children's departments because we want, number one, we want you to see us leading in that way. Uh, there's not a task. Any leader of this church, I hope that I am right uh, in, in saying this. I believe to be right in saying that I don't believe there's a task that any leader in our church uh, would not be willing to do small or large, and so, uh, and so we want to, to show that, we want to set that example, and we want to encourage you as well uh, to be serving in those areas. Man, those are great ways to get involved every single service. We have children's in preschool that we would love to see you uh, get involved in. I know Samantha or Lynn would love to see you come up after service. Uh, and, and let them know that you're wanting to uh, participate in that. Uh, but we are thankful for you being here, whether online or uh, here in person. We know we got quite a few, had graduation this week and Memorial Day weekend, so being a long weekend, know we got some people scattered out. But man, we are so thankful for you joining us today uh, to be here with us. Uh, we get the opportunity to celebrate right, the, the sacrifice of so many uh, and, and, and the sacrifice that they made, the ultimate sacrifice for us to enjoy the freedom that we have to get together and worship and do whatever we're going to do this weekend to do that. And so I don't, I don't, we'd be remiss not to bring that up. And so uh, I, I want to lead us in just a time of prayer. Listen, we know that our country is hurting. We know about the tragedies uh, in Texas. And, and just there's, there's a lot of hurt that's going on. But we just we want to pray and remember those uh, that have given that sacrifice, but also those that have been affected by those that have given the sacrifices, family and friends uh, here stateside. So let's, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you so much for, day and for today. And God, it is a sobering time as we remember, Lord, the sacrifices of so many that have been made for us. And so seemingly undeserving of, of those sacrifices. But God, I pray that it would serve as, as an example to us. Father, I pray as we seek to address and speak to God, so many things, uh, Lord, that are happening in our country. Lord, we know, God, that our hope is not in this world. Our hope is not in man. And God, our hope is found in you. And so, Father, I pray that you would be with the hurting this week, today, uh, now, and in the future. God, we intercede for them. And God, just pray that you would bring yourself glory through it all. It's in your holy name we pray. Amen. And amen. Uh, we, it's amazing to me being a dad. It's amazing to me the object lessons that your kids become. And that, you don't have to be a preacher. Now, if you're the preacher's kid, everybody just hears about those object lessons. But if you're a parent in this room, you know that your kids provide incredible object lessons. I learned a lot about, about being a dad. I learned a lot about love. 
uh, when I had our, our first, my first son, I had Cooper, he's now 10, uh, learned a lot about that. Uh, I learned, a, when I had our second child, I learned a lot about sin. Because you realize that perfect angel you have isn't a perfect angel anymore. I want to peel back the curtain for you to a conflict that's been going on in my home for about two months. Uh, my sons received electronic devices for Christmas. I know, I know, I already heard, like I heard air go out of the room, uh, oxygen levels dropped, like y'all know where I'm going with this. So my oldest son got what he's been looking for for a long time. He got an iPod. He wanted music. He wanted to have games. He wanted to be able to play it on his own. Of course, we put all the restrictions. What I love about an iPod is you can't, there, you got to be attached to Wi-Fi, which we absolutely can control. And, uh, and so he got an iPod for Christmas. His brother got a Nintendo Switch. And man, they both have loved those devices. They loved it. That was their big present. That's what they got. And they have loved it. Well, two months ago, chaos struck our home when my oldest could no longer find his iPod. Now, there's only one solution in his mind. He lost it, right? Shoot, no. His brother lost it. Right? His seven-year-old brother, and he is right now, to this day, he's on the second row. Let the record show, stating his case, it was absolutely his brother. Uh, I will tell you, his mother and I are less than convinced. Um, we don't know who lost it, but we know it was lost because we saw the fallout. Uh, the fallout was this. My son made, regardless of if he was right or wrong that his brother stole it, he made a mathematical leap that I don't necessarily agree with. Here's was his, here's was his, his math. Uh, his brother losing his electronic device equals him being able to have full reign of that device, when, of, of his brother's device, whenever he wants it. Now, that doesn't mean, hey, Bubba, finish your game, and then I'll, ta I'll, I'll, I'll play for, for a while. It means whenever his brother's doing something awesome, and he's winning a bunch and really excited about it, that's the prime time to yank it out of his hand. And when his brother says, Bubba, give it back, Hudson, you lost my iPod, Right? So because he lost his iPod, get it back, right? Um, I will tell you we have been delivered from this period of captivity in our home. Uh, of our bondage is over. The iPod has been found to the glory of God, everybody. Hands. Okay, well, you can clap that or not, but I, I, I was clapping, all right? When my wife showed it to me, we were clapping. It was in the back seat of the car. And guess who occupies the back seat of our car? Both of them. So who lost it? We don't know. The iPod's back. All is returned to normal. But here's what I would tell you about that. What that demonstrated to me is, you know, pride and selfishness is not just a child's trait. Pride and selfishness is not child's play. It's not something that we shed when we get, apparently it's, it happens at 11 because he's 10. So it's not something we shed at 11 or as we get older and go into adulthood, pride is something and selfishness is something that we will fight our whole lives. Now, today we're talking about the fight of a follower. Jesus is talking to his disciples, right, in, Matthew, in Mark 8 through 10. He's talking to them specifically about what it means to be a follower of Christ, what it means to be a disciple in God's kingdom. And it's going to be different from the kingdom of this world. And so in order to do that, we're going to have to shed things that 
that resemble greatness and power and purpose in this world, we're going to have to shed them in order to see greatness and pride and, and purpose in this life. And so we find ourselves in Mark chapter 10. I believe it's important as we talk about Memorial Day weekend and those that would give their lives. Man, what an amazing thing that God's worked out. It goes hand in hand with this, right? We understand that sacrifice and the service that they gave us, but it's exactly what Christ is calling his disciples to because there was one that laid down his life, not just for our physical life, to enjoy the freedoms that we have, but one that would lay down his life to save us for all eternity, to save not just our mortal souls, but our eternal souls as well. And so if you look with me, Mark chapter 10, we see this conflict that's going to go on. And listen, it's going to fight. It's going to be a fight. To the day we die, we will fight the flesh. We have been saved. We have been redeemed but we have not received the end results of our salvation yet. There is an already and not yet aspect of our salvation, right? God has given us his Holy Spirit, but we still are in the flesh. And we have a propensity at times to follow the desires of the flesh. So this is listen to the, the conflict that there is from the kingdom of God to the kingdom of man that will be and played out in the heart and lives of every believer. The first thing that we see is Christ's passion Versus man's passion, right? The, the, the underlying cause, the underlying reason, the desire by, in which we do all that we do. There's going to be a fight there, a spiritual battle that must take place. Mark chapter 10, verse 32. And they were on the road going to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going to go to Jerusalem, going up to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man there in Jerusalem will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. Now, there's some interesting context that we need to understand about what's happening here. First, when Jesus is around his disciples, more times than not, he is described as being with his disciples, being around them, walking in step, going somewhere together with them, part of the group. This is not what we see here. Jesus is ahead of his disciples. Jesus is blowing rump in their face, and they're, called, they're, t they're following him, right? You almost see like a reluctance in them. Well, what is the reluctance from? Well, what we know is in John chapter 11, and you can turn there and look later on, but John chapter 11, the last part of the, of the passage tells us that people were on notice, in Jerusalem, when the Passover was coming, they knew that Jesus liked to show up during the religious holidays as a good Jew would, and they were wondering if Jesus was going to come back. Everybody was asking the question, is Jesus going to be here? Like, is Jesus coming? Because the, the chief priests and the Pharisees had already said, if Jesus shows up, there will be a reward for someone who lets us know where he is and we will go and arrest him. We don't need him ruining our Passover festivities. So the whole crowd was already on notice. 
is Jesus going to show up? Is he going to be here? The last time he was here, we tried to stone him and arrest him. That didn't work out. He just left. I don't know how that happens, but he just left, and none of that happened. So when he shows back up, we'll be ready for him. Well, the disciples knew that. Jesus knew that. By the way, it's exactly what happens to Jesus. Now it's from one that he would that you would not expect. It's from, from one of the twelve, but Jesus said that too. He said that he would be betrayed. This isn't the first time that Jesus told them this is what the Messiah must accomplish. Right? But he's almost dragging his disciples along. They don't want to go. Right? They know what's awaiting Christ. And he's even telling them again in Jerusalem this is going to happen. But Jesus is leading the way. While leading the way to Jerusalem, Jesus foretells what will happen to them to him again. This time with even more detail. Three different times Jesus gives them, I will die and I will be raised. I will suffer, I will die, and I will be raised. Three times, Mark 8, Mark 9, Mark 10. You can go back and look. In this passage that he is talking to his disciples, he is talking a lot about his death. And what is so interesting to me is every single time he brings up his suffering and death, the very next passage, go back and look, the very next passage is the disciples completely not getting it and proving that they don't get it by jockeying for position. The first time, Mark 8, is Peter, right? When he says, this is what's going to happen. I will suffer and I will die. And three days later, I'll be raised again. And Peter says, no, 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 Jesus. That's not what we learned the Messiah is supposed to do. You're not going to die. We won't let it happen. And what does Jesus tell him? Get thee behind me, Satan. Right? Why? Because Peter wanted the position that came with being the right-hand man to the Messiah. John chapter, or Mark chapter 9. What happens? Jesus tells them what's going on. And then they're like, do you get what he's saying? No, I don't really get it either. By the way, who do you think is the greatest of all the disciples? Like, who's the best? Who's the biggest one? Like, who, who can heal the most people? Right? This happens in, in, in Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 10, we will see the exact same thing. Jesus is leading the way to lay down his life for humanity, and all the disciples can care about is themselves. Listen to what it says. James and John, Mark 10, 3, 35. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Stop right there. If I am dictating to the eternal Son of God who has given up heaven for me, needless to say, I'm in a poor headspace if I am telling him I need you to do anything that I ask of you right now. Agreed? This means yes? Right. Okay? This is, this is a poor question to ask somebody who has emptied himself of all the privilege of heaven and has come down to earth. Listen to what he says. And he said to them, what do you want me to do for you? Can you hear the frustration in his voice? And they said to him, grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in glory. They're not concerned about the 
suffering. At least they're not looking at it. They're just disregarding it. They're almost looking around the suffering to what they can get in the future. Now, Matthew paints a very different picture. Matthew blames their mama. Matthew blames a woman named Salome who was their mother. It was Jesus' aunt Mary's sister. James and John were her children, so that makes James and John Jesus' cousins, right? And so they, that scripture seems to point to, and Matthew seems to point to, like James and John are like, no, mama, don't tell him, don't tell him. Oh, gosh, she's doing it, John. She's doing it. She's telling him that we want to sit on his right and left hand. I cannot believe this. Mama, you embarrass me so much. But that's not what happens here. Mark's account is very different. In fact, we don't know who actually told them, who actually voiced the words. But this was a family collab that led them to the conclusion, hey, kids, you need to make sure that you are on his right and left. I mean, y'all family, we got to protect family, right? Y'all fam jam, y'all need to get together and y'all need to make sure that you got your spots secured. The grand total of all that Jesus has taught them has taught them, hey, I need to be on the right and left-hand side. And so whether it was their mama or whether it was them, this family had collaborated their own position and their own understanding of greatness. After Jesus has detailed his desire, Peter and then his disciples, the whole group of them, and now James and John, right, the three... And then all of, the, all of them have determined they have no idea, no idea what they're pushing toward, what they're after in the kingdom of God. In stark contrast to Christ's selflessness, we seek selfish motives. We see the selfish motives of two of his closest disciples. James and John sought to de-emphasize to downplay the suffering, to reach the end of personal gain. Whereas Christ, on the other hand, emphasized the suffering to achieve the gain of everyone. Not the gain of himself, but he sought through suffering to seek the gain of all. He knew that there would be great suffering. It meant great personal net loss. For Christ, in order to bring about gain for the kingdom of God, for his people. And he tells, they tell him, do, what, do whatever I ask you to do. And we look at that and we go, man, I can't believe they asked that. But then we think about the way that we live our lives. In the Christian life, if you're in it for yourself, suffering has a perfect way of bringing that to life. Suffering will identify exactly who you are in this for. It is amazing how we can be derailed by suffering in our life. God, if you loved me, you wouldn't have allowed me to get passed up in my job. God, if you loved me, you wouldn't have allowed this family member to be hurt or to pass away or this family member to hurt me the way that they did. God, if you loved me, I wouldn't have to endure all this suffering. See, we're all fine and good with following God, but as soon as suffering enters in, we begin to have words. 
begin to doubt the goodness of God in our life because how dare he allow us to go through suffering. But this is not a this is not something that we should hope not to experience. This is an inevitability for a follower of Christ. You will endure suffering, a level of suffering. There will be pain, there will be hurt. If for nothing else, he causes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. So guess what? If it's happening bad to you, it's going to happen bad to someone else, right? That, that, that just happens. It's part of the condition. But man, suffering can have such a derailing effect when we when we are in it for ourselves, when we're in it for the position, they, they de-emphasized the suffering because they wanted all of the prestige and the power at the end. Jesus, oh, yeah, 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 you're suffering and dying. Okay, great. But when you are raised, let me sit at your right and your left hand. They were concerned about their position with the Lord. The flesh finds joy in exalting self. The spirit finds joy in exalting others. Right? This is different. This is the battle that we will fight. Jesus was laying himself down, leading the way to lay himself down in order to bring people to right relationship with God. And in, this, in, in the exact opposite, the disciples were completely disregarding every other person's proximity to Jesus and trying to secure a position by his side. Do you see the complete shift in ideology? And so the flesh finds joy in exalting self. The spirit finds joy in exalting others. Disciples looked around the suffering to see a better position for themselves. But Christ would look, choose to look through the suffering to see a better position for others. This is the difference. Have you ever thought... The reason why you're going through what you're going through? Yeah, I'm, there, there's a reason for you. Have you ever thought maybe the, the, the whole reason you're going through what you're going through is so that you can be a ministry to someone else when they go through it? But we disregard that because we look past that to see only what Christ can do for us. Can I tell you this? If your relationship with Christ is predicated on the promise that one day you will receive all that you've ever wanted in heaven, and that is the end of your commitment, you are, you are settling for less than salvation. What you are not serving the initiative and the agenda of God in your life. You don't have an understanding of lordship. If you are living this way, you are serving yourself, not the Lord. So let's not mix it. If you're in it for the reward of heaven, and that's where it ends, my friend, you have missed relationship. Relationship sees through suffering to see what God can do on the other side. How do you know Jesus felt this way? Well, Hebrews 12.2 tells us. You can turn there if you'd like. It'll be on the screen. Hebrews 12.2. It says, looking to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Well, there's some words there that don't seem to mix. He had joy. There was joy set before him. The joy set before him led him to endure the cross. Well, endurance 
is not something you typically find associated with joy. So joy led him to endure, to bear the weight of the cross, and then to despise the shame. So joy led him to endure, led him to bear under the weight of, and led him to despise, to completely hate the shame of the cross. Yet it, for the joy set before him, he did these things. What was his joy then? And now I'll say this. To say you and me were his joy is to miss what God is doing big picture. We are not the reason for the gospel. Okay? We are not the end of the gospel. Jesus wasn't thinking of you above all. He was thinking of God's glory. Jesus had a mission. His mission was to bring God glory in his life through the submission of his will to the Father, and he was to bring glory. How would he bring glory? Through his sacrifice, many, many others would choose to follow and bring glory to God in their life. We were not the end. We were a byproduct. Of what happened. Jesus sought the glory of the Father, submitted his will to the glory of the Father, and it led to us having the opportunity over 2,000 years later to gather together in a room and sing glory, give glory to God because of what he did through the person of Jesus Christ. This is what he did. And so we identify with that. This is, this is what Christ has done for us. For the joy set before him, for the glory of God, he despised the cross. He endured the cross, despised the shame. And in so doing, God's glory resulted in our good. So yeah, it was good news for us. But we're not the end in and of itself. We can make even the gospel serve our own purposes. Only sinful man can make the good news of Jesus Christ serve our own personal preference. Not looking past and around the suffering, but looking through it to see the better position for others. Secondly, Christ's plan versus man's plan. How this is accomplished is completely different. The perspective that we have is completely different. Mark 10, 38. Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. Again, we, we see here almost a refusal to legitimize the suffering that they would have to endure in order to get the power that they seek, right? What do they, what do they say there? Jesus tells them, do you, not, do you think that you can handle, if you're asking to sit at my right and left hand, do you think you can handle even a taste of what I am about to experience? What was the cup that he was referring to? He's not talking about just death. What was he in torment in Gethsemane about? That he would drink the wrath of God. That the weight of sin, past, present, and future, would be laid upon Jesus on the cross. 
that he would pacify, he would provide atonement, would provide propitiation for all sin for all time through his death. And he's asking his disciples, do you think that you can even handle a small molecule of this suffering, of this pain? And they are proud enough to say, yeah, buddy, we got it. We can handle it. Devaluing the suffering that Christ would endure in order to seek, get the power that they seek. By extension, they're delegitimizing the suffering of Christ as well, the work of Christ. If man can save himself, if man can die for sin, if man can stand under the weight of sin, then we don't need a Messiah. We don't need a Jesus. We don't need a Savior. We can save ourselves. But they had become so wrapped up in their pride, so hungry to seek position, that they missed the truth of the gospel. You see, in essence, in an effort to, to rise to a certain position, they claimed to be able to bear a weight that only Christ was capable of bearing. And so when we seek power and position, it does two things. When we make that the God in our life, when we seek to gain rather than to give, rather than to surrender, when we do that, it does two things. Number one, it oversells the work that we could, can accomplish. What did James and John do? Yeah, we can handle it. We can handle the weight. No big deal, Jesus. Just put it on us. It oversells what we can do. And listen, if you want to frustrate somebody in leadership, you oversell yourself and then underdeliver. The reality is they had no business making that claim. There's no way they could stand under that. They were sinners themselves. That's why it took the perfect Lamb of God. Only Jesus could die for sin. Only the Messiah, only the perfect Lamb of God that would take away the sins of the world. What were they doing? They were putting themselves in equal importance, equal power, equal ability to Jesus, to the Son of God, right? And so it, it oversells. When we seek power and position, it oversells the work that we could accomplish. We begin to see ourselves and our strategies and our industries as being able to provide satisfaction and salvation for us. And you go, well, I don't do that. But I would ask you, how many days did you miss work today, this week? Now, how many times did you neglect to pick up God's word? We can say a lot of things are important. When you start looking at your life, it's obvious that we don't have this same posture of humility that Christ has. That we are looking to ourselves to provide some type of satisfaction. Now, we may trust God for the end, you know, way down the road, but we're going to meet our own needs while we're at it. To do this is to devalue what Christ is, to oversell a work, the work that we can accomplish. The second thing it does is it undersells the work that Christ only can accomplish. It undersells it. If we can save ourselves, then anybody can save themselves. We don't need Jesus. If man can accomplish salvation, then why is there a need to look to Christ? We begin to dictate the terms of our agreement. Well, God, I'm going to do this, but I'm not going to do this. Like James and John, give me whatever I ask of you, Jesus. 
give me whatever I ask. But we live lives on our own terms. And so though we may not articulate these things, we live this way, seeking that power, seeking the position in our life. And so Christ's example teaches in your notes, our position is God's business. Our posture is our business. I don't care if you like where you are or not in life. That doesn't matter. Your position is not any of your business. The reason God has you in the position that he has you right now is for a specific purpose and a specific ministry. And it may be that God will keep you in there until you understand that he has something for you there. Your position is inconsequential because you can't provide position for yourself. Only God can do that. This is God's business. Where you're at in life, where you're at with your family, where you're at with your kids, where you're at with your parents, where you're at with your coworkers, where you're at financially, position is God's business. What's incumbent on us is to find the correct posture. What was Jesus' posture? To become obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. To lay down and submit his life wholly and complete. But this is a fight, right? We, we talked about it. this is a fight, right? This, this happens within us. We, we keep wanting to take ownership for ourselves. Paul David Tripp said this. I think it's awesome. God's plan for ministry is not a throne but a cross. If ministry was about being in a position, Jesus would have stayed in heaven. He'd have stayed on the throne. But no, he intentionally went to the cross. He didn't ascend to the throne. He was there. He descended to the cross for us to create a people that would not seek to ascend to some powerful position, but those that would bankrupt themselves in order to see others grow, to see God's glory extended to the ends of the earth. This is the example that we have in Christ. And quite frankly, we don't live this way. Thirdly and finally, the reason we don't live this way is because there's a conflict in our understanding of greatness. So we see finally in the last conflict, Christ's greatness versus man's greatness. Mark 10, 41 through 45. Yeah, it's all fine and good when James and John say something to Jesus, but the ten overheard. Listen to what they did. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant with James and John. You punks. I knew that they'd say something like, that is like them, bunch of cousins looking for nepotism, like, that is like them to do it. Of course, James and John, with their mama in tow, because Auntie Salome wanted them to sit at their right and left-hand side, of course they would do that. They were indignant at James and John. And Jesus realized, Jesus knew, but it became very apparent this was not a problem with two. This was a problem with all twelve. I would say by extension, it's a problem with all of us. All of us to grab greatness as the world defines it, not as Christ defines it. Jesus called them all to himself and he said to them, 
You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them. The Gentiles do this. But it's not going to be so among you. But shall it not be so among you? But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever must be first among you must be a slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is a lesson Jesus taught his disciples that I had a godly man teach me while I was in seminary. He grabbed a picture just like this. And he said, everyone in this classroom is this balloon. We seek to be happy. We seek to be fulfilled in and of ourselves. We want to be content. And if we're not careful, we will buy the teaching of the world that says the way we are happy is we find ourselves higher than everyone else. We place ourselves at the top. This is worldly leadership. We're in rarefied air here. The rest of the world doesn't quite measure up. But we sit atop and we rule with an iron fist. We make sure that people know that we're powerful. They make sure, we make sure that people know that we are greater than them. We lord it over them is what Jesus said. The Gentiles do this. This is worldly leadership on full display. The only person that's truly qualified to lead is, is me. So I'm going to do everything I can to stay on top. This is the natural thing. Man, I could leave this forever and it's going to stay just like this. This is the natural understanding of worldly leadership. They weren't concerned with Christ. They weren't concerned with the fact that Jesus was telling them that he would suffer and that he would die, that he would be betrayed by one of their hands. They weren't concerned about any of that. All of that paled in comparison to, hey, what about me? If James and John have right and left, where do I get? Where do I get to stand? They were concerned about position. In your notes, greatness is not found in power that you wield but in power that you yield. Jesus says, this is Gentile leadership 101. This is not kingdom of God leadership. The kingdom of the world will tell you this. But what Jesus is showing, and he, by the way, he uses the greatest illustration he could ever use. He uses what he is about to do. He uses the illustration, the example of himself. And he says, no, this is the idea of leadership. Instead of you seeing yourself as the only one qualified, is you seeing the one that needs the power to grab the power here of this leadership position. If we will force ourselves lower, if we will fight not to raise ourselves up, 
That'll happen naturally. But if we will, through Christ, through his grace, we will press ourselves down. We will allow ourselves to endure discomfort, allow ourselves to endure pain, allow ourselves to not get the spotlight all the time, to not get our names in lights in the bulletin. If we will press ourselves down, if we will serve others, what we'll see is the entire kingdom rises. The entire, every follower of Christ can grow. If we will serve others, we will bring greater glory. The level of leadership rises, we will bring ultimate glory to God. Now, it's not going to come through glory to ourselves. But it will come by glorifying God, pressing ourselves down. What is Jesus doing? He's humbled himself, become obedient even to the point of death. The death of a cross. This is leadership in the kingdom of God. Not this church exists to serve me, but I exist to serve this church. Being a leader means God's called me to this stewardship, not allowing everybody to lift me up to my lofty standing. He uses two words to identify this leadership principle. First, he uses the word servant. This is the word diakonos, where we get the word deacon. Meaning servant. Literally meaning to wait tables. Those that would wait tables. Well, who's someone that would wait a table? Someone that would volunteer to put themselves at the service of others. They would volunteer to do it. Now, it may not be their whole life's calling, but they would volunteer to serve someone else. He uses the term servant. The greatest among you, whoever would be great among you, must be your servant. Those that would wait tables, it is one who voluntarily renders useful service to others. But he doesn't stop there. He doubles down. He emphasizes it even greater by using the second word. The second word he uses is the word slave. It's the Greek word doulos. It is literally the lowest human being that you could possibly imagine. It is a doulos. It is, a, it is lower than a servant. It is not someone who has volunteered to help somebody in a moment of need. It is somebody that has forfeited rights to their entire life. To be a doulos means to forfeit. It is the forfeiture of every right that you have in order to meet the needs and serve at the good pleasure of someone else. That's what a doulos was. A doulos, once sold into slavery, does not get out of slavery. Once you are a doulos, once you were a slave, you were there forever. But you have forfeited the right to call your life on your own terms. You are a slave. And Jesus says, the greatest among you, the greatest among you will be your slave. Whoever would be first. If you seek to be greatest, if you aspire to greatness in my kingdom, you'll be a slave. You will forfeit the rights to your own life in order to receive all that Christ has. And that's hard. It's a hard thing to live. I'm going to let go of all the things I think, things I think I've earned, the things that I think I deserve. I used to tell teenagers, they would say, I deserve da 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 da. I deserve my mom to give me more freedom. I deserve my girlfriend to treat me better. I stop them and I say, Listen, 
The moment we say we deserve, if it is not followed by eternal hell fire, we win. <laughs> right? If it's, because the only thing that we deserve is eternity separated from God in eternal torment. That's what we deserve. That's what we've all earned. That's what our lofty position of leadership, that, that's what we've all deserve. What Christ has given us is grace upon grace and mercy upon mercy. And as Paul would say, may his grace toward me not be in vain. You know what he says? 1 Corinthians 15, same one that wrote Philippians 2, let this mind be in you is also in Christ Jesus. So being in the form of God, didn't see equality of God, a thing to be grasped. But he humbled himself and became obedient and took the form of a servant. Being found in, in, in the image of a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even the death of the cross. The same one that said that said, I have to die. 1 Corinthians 15, 31, I believe. I die daily. This is the fight for us as children of God. A fight against the flesh to live for the glory of the only one who's truly worthy of it. And so is that you? Is that the posture of your life? In your notes, right? Greatness is not found in the power that you wield, the power that you yield. Are we willing to give up that in order to see the greatness of God extended to those that desperately need him? This is a follower. This is a disciple. This is a child of the kingdom of God. Would you bow your head and close your eyes? If you're here today and you don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ, listen. <laughs> I know you've heard me say, right, that we are to surrender our life and what we want and our aspirations to God. But when we receive life back, when God gives us our marching orders, when he lives his life through us, What I can assure you is it's greater than the life that you left. It's greater than the life that you gave up. Christ, as a good father, wants to give good gifts to his children. If we will live for him and for his kingdom purposes. So if you're here and you've never, you've never accepted Christ's life. You've never abandoned your way of life and you've never surrendered to the lordship of Christ. I want to inspire you. I want to encourage you. Please, today, make that decision to commit your life to Jesus Christ. would love to talk to you about the relationship that you can have with him. When I say amen in just a moment, when the prayer's over, you have the opportunity to come down to the front to talk to me. We've got counselors that are waiting. would love to talk to you about how you can know that you have committed your life for, to Christ. You have begun your relationship with him and experienced all that he has to offer you. Maybe you're here. And maybe a response looks different for you. Maybe you know that you have a relationship with Christ, but man, there's some things you need to lay down. Maybe there's someone that God's laid on your heart that you need to pray for, you need to intercede for. This altar is going to be open here at the front. You can walk right past me and you can do business with the Lord right here. Whatever decision needs to be made, I just pray that the Lord would lead you. His Holy Spirit would lead you. May you not bow to the desires of your flesh. May you receive, may you respond to the leading of His Holy Spirit today. May He win today in this moment in your life. Christ be on the throne of your life.
Father, have your will and way in this place. We love you. We thank you for what you've done for us. We thank you for making life available through your son. God, may we walk in obedience to you. May we continue to fight the flesh that wells up within us. Pray for one that doesn't have that relationship with you, Lord. They're powerless to do just that. God, that today their first step of obedience would be to come find the center aisle and to let somebody know about the decision they've made today to follow you as Lord and Savior. God, you have so much for us. Let us not diminish your work by overselling our work, whether that's in deed or whether that's in word. May we live for you and may you receive glory. In this moment, and in the moments to follow. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And amen. You can stand to your feet as we sing. This is your opportunity to respond. Any decision that you need to make today, this is your time.